to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Upside of Irrationality by Dan Ariely. The unexpected benefits of defying logic at work and at home. Dan the man, legendary behavioral economist, both as a researcher and an educator. I think it was all the way back in 2017. We did his famous book, Predictably Irrational. And of course, one of our favorite interviews, interviewing the great man when he was in Australia, sharing a cheap wine, a kebab and a night at the ballet. It was a phenomenal night, very memorable, and uh, it was a lot of fun to hang out with. So, Predictably Irrational is about the 10 ways in which humans are irrational in general, and this is where economists start with the very basic principle. So, this is where if you look at a rational human being, rationality is considered the assumption that when presented with options, humans, we're going to choose the option that best serves us in terms of our needs and our goals. As it turns out, we often stuff this up. We often make the wrong choice. We do things that are against our best interests. But what Dan found is not only are we irrational, not only do we make the wrong decisions, we're actually predictably irrational in that we make the same mistakes for the same reasons all the time, which is kind of good because it means then we can work out some of those kinks. So this book, The Upside of Irrationality, this looks at how all these irrationalities impact us at home and at work. And in this episode, we're going to look at motivation in work and how irrationality impacts us when it comes to three sources of motivation, pay, meaning, and ownership. The first study starts out like many studies of the uh, the 1950s and 60s. You've got a poor little lab rat sitting in their nice, comfy home, and then some guy in a white lab coat comes in, grabs him, picks him up, and puts him into some kind of torture device. In this case, it's a maze. Mm, There's a lot of talk about oppression these days, and... You just think those old lab rats are the most oppressed and messed up species of all time, especially in this one, because this maze they're put into, the whole point of it is to try and see how quickly rats can learn when incentives are involved. Now, in this maze, you've got this whole white floor. When you're on the white floor, you're pretty safe. You can run around and you can have your fun. But as soon as you go on the black floor, you're going to get zapped. You're going to get zapped pretty hard and uh, you don't want to go in the black space. And uh, some rats, they might learn this quicker than other rats. So, the maze changes every day. We've still got the white is safe, black is zap. But the maze, the actual layout of where the white bits are and where the black bits are change every day. So, obviously, there's an incentive here. And the incentive, it's a pretty shit incentive as far as incentives go. But the incentive is not getting shocked. Mm. So, two psychologists, Robert Yerkes and John, John the Dodman, they wanted to know two things from this, how fast the rats could learn and what intensity of electric shocks could motivate the rats to learn the fastest. There's a fair assumption here. You'd assume that the more intense the shock, the more incentives there are, so then you're going to learn quicker. And uh, I'd say that's a fair guess. You'd think that if you plotted incentives versus performance, so you know the level of shock versus the learning speed, you'd have a pretty constant linear up. The higher the incentive means the higher the performance. The more shocks there are, the quicker they're going to learn. Or you probably assume as well that there's going to be some kind of diminishing returns. You're going to go up quickly, but then at some point, there's just a physical limit to how quick these rats can learn, so it's going to taper off at some point. That would be a guess anyway. But of course, there is a twist to this, and they found something very interesting that as the shocks went to extremely intense, like it just really just zapped the hell out of this poor lab rat, performance actually dropped. And when the shocks were low... The rats casually went through the course and it wasn't a very big deal to have the shocks, so there wasn't a big impact from it. But when the shocks were at medium intensity, it was a positive thing. It became more beneficial to learn the maze quicker so that you didn't get shocked. 
So in summary, we've got a bit of an inverted U here. So at the beginning, with a little shock, does hardly anything. And at the extreme end of it, it actually performance actually drops and it gets worse. Whereas in the middle, you get a sweet spot of, of the right amount of shock that you can electrocute the rats with. Yeah, that's right. The first half makes sense. Low incentive, low performance, medium incentive, strong performance. The, the confusing bit is that higher one. And that's when the rats are just getting shocked the shit out of them. They literally can't think of anything else. Their focus narrows. The pain saps away all their ability to learn. They're paralyzed by the terror of being shocked. Uh, they can't really remember what's safe, what's dangerous. And uh, they're just scared to take that next step, just fearing that mega shock. So we need to really find that sweet spot for the lab rats. And hopefully there's a bit more application broader than just lab rats as well. Yeah, well, that's the point of it. These people just don't hopefully sadistically just enjoy <laughs> hurting these poor rats because it does just apply a lot to our day-to-day -day lives. Think about CEOs. If you give them bigger bonuses, maybe a little bonus is quite different to the extreme, extreme bonus where most of their, the cash they're bringing in is from the bonus rather than a salary. Or if you've got a team of employees underneath you, if you want to give them a big grilling one day, they stuff something up. Or the way in you give your reprimands or your bonuses, inverted you will have implications also on this. So Ariely and some of his mates, they did a study in India, taking this study out from the lab rat realm into the human realm. And what they did was they had a bunch of simple little games like drawing a maze, remembering a string of numbers, playing darts. And what they did for these 10 games was they gave them a chance. Basically, the, the people either passed or failed. If they did it well enough, they got a reward. If they failed, they got nothing. And what they did was they wanted to have three different extreme groups. They've got a low incentive group, a medium incentive group, and a high incentive group. So the low, they got four rupee per game that they did well at. Uh, the medium got 40 per game, which meant they could really earn up to two weeks of wages at a time if they got them all right, and the high was 400 rupee, and if they got them all right, that was really six months of wages for these people. So, that's a pretty extreme incentive. Absolutely shitting yourself there, aren't you? Six months of work on the line, you got a dart in your hands, <laughs> usually pretty fun, or uh, probably akin to a golf pro, right? Because there's such a diminishing returns, because there's such high stakes when you're putting at the green or something, of winning a tournament mm. or coming second. So, when your brain is just so focused on this, uh, you can't get your mind off it. And uh, as the results you'd expect, the low group, they actually got 40% of their tasks right. So they got four out of 10 on average. The medium group with higher incentives, they performed better. They got actually a 45% strike rate. But again, the twist, just like the lab rats, when the incentives were too high, performance suffered. So they only got 25%. So they actually dropped off significantly from both the low and the medium if you had six months of wages on the line. Yeah, it's pretty weird, isn't it? That a huge incentive actually hurts the performance in all scenarios. And uh, Ariely and his mates, again, they went back to the drawing board and did a whole bunch of more studies and came up and refined their conclusion with a bit more nuance here. And what they found was it all came down to how much cognitive skill is required in the tasks. So it turns out in highly cognitively demanding tasks, the higher bonuses tended to backfire. That's right. Sometimes in the non-cognitively demanding tasks, uh, performance incentive makes you work harder. If you think you can put in that extra hour of overtime or if you work that little bit quicker on a non-cognitively demanding task, then yeah, the more money it is, probably the harder you're going to work. But as soon as it creeps into the cognitive realm, the incentives and the performance don't line up whatsoever. It's sort of like just getting paid more to think harder and come up with better ideas. The more you get paid isn't going to improve the ideas that you come up with. So in summary here, using money to motivate people can be a double-edged sword. It can work for non-cognitive demanding tasks, but for things that require cognitive ability that you need to change your strategy if you want to be most effective with how you distribute bonuses and reprimands. And Ariely has come up with three solutions to all of this. 
Yeah. Firstly, he says keep bonuses low. That's pretty. That's pretty sad if you if you like your bonuses. But he says that yes, we, they've seen that low to medium types of incentives can improve performance, but those high ones start to tip the edge. So unfortunately, if you're used to getting that nice big juicy bonus at the end of the year, maybe it's actually hurting your performance. And uh, I think all the bosses will be happy to to follow up on his suggestion here. And let's say, yeah, let's go for lower bonuses. Oh, 100%. You take that and just keep the cash in your pocket <laughs> if you're a boss. <laughs> yeah, just say it's, oh, it's irrationality, you know. It's just, it's motivation. <laughs> that's 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 what the studies say. No bonuses, guys. So second one, rather than the cash in the pocket, you might actually just pump it back into their salary and maybe just get rid of bonuses for performances. It could eliminate the negative benefits of over-bonusing. So you're not going to have to worry about the issues created in these studies. Or another one, really the ultimate would be to find that perfect sweet spot, uh, find that you're giving enough incentive to work a little bit harder but not so much that you're killing them uh, and killing their performance. And what he says is rather than having one big fat bonus at the end of the year, which you either get or you don't get, he says maybe break them up, have smaller, more frequent bonuses. So maybe it's a, a monthly bonus or a quarterly bonus where if you hit your certain goals, you get that bonus for that smaller, shorter period rather than just waiting for that big, big, fat, juicy one at the end of the year that you might lose. Mm. At the end of the day, ultimately, we need to realize uh, and get a better understanding between the links of compensation, motivation, stress, and performance. And we need to take our peculiarities and our irrationalities into account. One of Dan, the man's former students, one day came back into Dan's office to visit just to say g'day. And he shared a recent story that reminded him of behavioral economics and something... That might have been interesting to him. And this is where he spent 10 weeks working on a huge project for a potential merger because his company was looking to buy another company and Dave was on the research team. Dave, he worked very hard on analyzing the data, making beautiful graphs and projections. He often stayed back late at work till after midnight, polishing off the various slides of his PowerPoint deck. And he was super delighted with the outcome. When the day finally came to submit it, he gleefully sent it off to his boss and... Uh, even though David was just a, a little uh, cog, he was too low down the food chain to actually go to the presentation, he was still super proud at the work he'd been able to produce. A few hours later, his boss emailed Dave and she said, sorry, Dave, but yesterday we learned that the company has pulled out of the deal. The merger's off, mate. But look, I looked at your presentation and geez, I was just blown away, Dave. I was really impressed by your piece of work. Well done, mate. Of course. <laughs> Dave, Poor David was pretty flat. Even though he got a nice little pat on the back, it was pretty flattening to know that all this stuff that you've been working on for 10 weeks was never going to see the light of day. He knew it was nothing personal. He knew that it wasn't because the boss said, your, your work shit, it's not good enough. It was literally just the fact that he'd done all this work, but the deal was off, so nobody was ever going to see it other than his boss who just had a quick look and said, good job, mate. Yeah, there's a lot of good things to take out of this. Uh, he worked hard, produced a high-quality work. The boss was happy with him. He knew he will eventually get positive reviews from his efforts, but he was just flat from the whole thing because all the hard work he put in, it just went down the drain. Yeah, all of a sudden, he didn't care as much about the next project he was on. He didn't really invest as many hours because he always had in the back of the mind thinking, what if this one gets canned as well? What if it's all this work is for nothing? You know, what if it never sees a light of day? And then uh, Dan was just thinking from his behavioral economic sense, you know, what if that was your job? What if your job was literally to just make PowerPoints that nobody was ever going to see? You get paid well, people say good job, but really it's all for nothing. So obviously, uh, it's this idea that work is more than just about putting in the hours and getting the money. There's obviously something more deeper that's motivating us to do work. I remember putting in a lot of work as a sustainability consultant. And when I used to work as one of that for a little bit, and you put hours and hours and weeks into a report, and uh, 
no one had really do anything based on the report. It was just kind of like a box ticker, and um, mm. and then it went away. And I th- have you read? You haven't read Bullshit Jobs yet? Oh, is that one of there's them? There's one. One of there's five. That's that's a, probably a teaser for an app coming up in a couple of months. Bullshit jobs. One of the bullshit jobs is box ticking. Yeah, well, <laughs> like just doing reports that nobody's ever going to read. Well, that's it. That's exactly what uh, what our mate here, David, went through essentially. Yeah, in he did all that way. work and nobody saw it. So on an intuitive level, most of us understand there is like this deep connection between identity and labor. Children, when you say, "What do you want to uh, do when you grow up?" They don't say, "Oh, I want to make a hundred hundred thousand dollars from my job." They say, "Oh, I want to be a." a firefighter, a teacher, a doctor, Dan reckons maybe someone to be a behavioral economist. I don't know if he just slipped that one in there or what, but uh, it's it's not about you know how much money you're going to make. It's really about what sort of things you're going to do of value. So there's this core link between identity and labor. It's not just about how much money you make, but it's really about what you do and what you contribute as well. And we kind of cook this because most of us as bosses and when we try and structure jobs and incentives, we're treating working people little bit like our old lab rats in a maze. We're assuming work is just going to be annoying and all that the rat or the person really cares about is what they're going to get at the end, the food they're going to put on the table and all they want to do is work for as little effort as possible in order to get a full belly most of the time. So in this model, it shouldn't matter what you're doing or why you're doing it, only that you just cash in a fat, juicy paycheck and that's all the worker really cares about. Yeah, obviously the economic models of rationality would say that all it is is time and cost, you know, the, what, what, what are you investing in terms of time? What are you getting back in terms of your rewards, your paycheck? But clearly, there's more to it than that. And they found in one study, uh, there was a guy walking around campus. His name was Joe. He spotted this big sign that said, get paid to build Lego. Now, as an aspiring engineer, Joe, he liked to build things. His favorite thing to do as a kid was building Lego. So, he popped in to build some Lego, not knowing that it was one of Dan's uh, human behavior and motivation studies. And Joe was in a group called the Meaningful Group. He was taken where he could build bionicles. And there was those small little fighting robots. There was 40 pieces. They had to go together following the instructions to put them in the right way. And eventually, you build up this big bionicle. So as part of the study, you get paid a diminishing scale for each bionicle you built. First one, you get two bucks. So as a student, not bad. It's half a pint. And then when you finish your first, you get to choose if you take the money or you do another one. But the next one you build is going to be $1.89, 11 cents less. And after you build that, you can again choose to keep going or work on the next one, which is going to be 11 cents less than that. There's no time limit. You can just keep building bionicles until you determine that the benefits no longer outweigh the costs. So one last thing the researcher said at the end, he says, oh yeah, you know, one last thing, uh, we have to use the same bionicles for all our participants. So at some point before the next participant shows up, I'm going to have to disassemble all the bionicles you built, put the parts back in the box for the next person, which is, you know, probably fair enough. You're not just going to have millions of bionicles piling up in the corner of the room. So Joe, he was super excited, wanted to get stuck in, ripped open his first box, had a quick glance at the instructions, started putting the pieces together. Joe, like a man on a mission, he smashed it. He went bionicle after bionicle, got to his 10th one and he said, no, that's it. I'm probably done here. (laughs) Got a bit of cash, had a bit of fun. So, he made 15 bucks and he admired the 10 bionicles just sitting on the table Mm. that he just built. Yeah, that's it. So, he was sitting at that table. He's seen his creation. He's seen those 10 different bionicles that he's put together. He's he's arranged them in their fighting stance and uh, he gave himself a nice little pat on the back put that 15 bucks and five cents into his back pocket and uh, was happy, went about his day. The next one, there's always a Chad, isn't there? At uh, <laughs> university, it's a pretty typical always a name, Chad. always a Chad. And he was randomly assigned, not to the meaning condition, 
not and obviously Chad didn't realize he was being assigned to anything at all, but he was assigned to the sissy feeing condition. And this was a run we really wanted to test and play a bit with Chad's mind here. Yeah, the instructions are exactly the same. Two bucks for the first one, 11 cents each for each subsequent one. Go as long as you want with no time limits until you decide that the benefits no longer outweigh the costs. And again, the researcher said, look, we have to use the same bionicles over and over. So at some point, I'm going to disassemble it and put the pieces back into the box. So, so far, the exact same uh, instructions, exact same conditions. So Chatty got to work. He opened up the first box, read the instructions, started planning his strategy, ready to attach the bionicle build, went about it cheerily and fantastic. Got his two bucks for the first one and do you want to do one, another one for $1.89? And Chad goes, yep, love that. Let's <laughs> keep going, mate. So this is where the, the different difference was in the, in the two different groups. So Chad starts building a second one and just as he puts his first two or three bits together, the researcher grabs the first one he'd done, starts pulling bits off. So Chad, he just finished it and the guy starts taking piece by piece off, putting it back into the box. And Chad's thinking, what the hell, man? I just built this. I thought this was part of the study. And Chad said, what are you doing? And, you know, there was probably a little bit of anger in his voice as well. And the researcher said, look, this is just part of the procedure. I said to you at the start, we use the same bionicles over and over. So I just need to put the pieces back into the box in case you want to build another one. So Chad asked for his second and third, do you want to build another one for $1.78? And he says yes, and the researcher goes, all right, here's the box, the one yeah. you assembled <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Um, have another crack. Chad was a little bit annoyed. He's like, I just did this yeah. on these exact same bloody pieces, but he got back into work. But but after the fourth one, he thought, all right, that's enough. I'm, I'm done with this. He cashed in his $7.34. There was nothing sitting on the table, and uh, he went home. Yeah, so there were the two different groups. The, the meaningful condition where they could see their amazing uh, creations all lined up in front of them versus the Sisyphean condition where there was only really two bionicles that they just kept circulating back and forth. They build it. As soon as they were done, the researcher would put it back in the box and give it to them again later. So the results on average with the meaningful condition, they did 10.6 bionicles and cashed in an average of $14.40. And even after the point where they'd done 10 and they were getting less than a dollar per bionicle, 65% of them kept going because they're enjoying the task. Compare that to the Sisyphean condition like Chad, they built only an average of 7.2 bionicles, earned an average of 11 bucks, and only 20% of them kept going. So overall, they built 32% fewer bionicles than the first group. So that's a third less if you saw your work getting pulled apart in front of your eyes. So one important note, so the instruction was that you can keep going as long as they want until the benefits no longer outweigh the costs. So purely from a rational and economic standpoint, the benefits are going to be the money and the cash you put in the pocket and what you can do after it. The cost is the time that you invest in doing the task. Clearly, in the workplace and even in this study, benefits do go beyond money and costs go beyond time. Benefits might be included the, the feeling of building something or bringing something to life or to just be able to point to something tangible and physical and just show off to a whole bunch of people of what you did. And costs are clearly not just time, but also the effort and energy and some emotional investment into doing something a little creative. But clearly, the emotional benefits that went beyond money are far more prevalent in the meaningful group. So those people are more motivated to work for reasons other than just money. So the meaning's got a very high reward that factors into human motivation compared to just the cash in the pocket. They did a second study with arguably a much more boring task. Building bionicles is at least a little bit enjoyable, even if it gets pulled apart in front of your eyes. This time, the study was a really basic one. There was a whole bunch of random letters on the page, and you had to go through line by line and find an S followed by another S. So out of all these, out of these uh, couple of hundred random letters on a page, you had to find double S's. 
They told you that there were 10 double S's on the sheet and you had to circle every time you found one. Once you found all 10, you hand your sheet in and you get your payment and then you go and grab the next sheet. Similarly, it's on a declining scale here, 55 cents for the first sheet, 50 cents for the next one drops down by 5 cents each time so that you try to work out at what point do the costs and benefits tip. Yeah, pretty shitty task. Not much meaning to be derived from specifically this sort of exercise. You're just looking at a sheet of paper. Um, But anyway, there were three sample groups that were broken down into. The first group was the acknowledged condition. And this is where once they finished the page, the participant wrote their name on the top of the sheet, they handed it into the experimenter, and the experimenter looked down from top to bottom, looked him in the eye, nodded and smiled, gave him a little wink and (laughs) said, well done. The second group were the ignored condition. So the task was absolutely identical up until the point they go up to the experimenter and the researcher at the top of the room. But when they handed the paper in, they didn't even get a glance. They didn't even show any signs of approval whatsoever and just took it and then put it in a big stack. The third group was ominously called the shredded condition. So as you can guess, this one was different and it got to the very end where the experiments were sitting at the back. As soon as they got the piece of paper, went straight in the shredder and again, didn't look or review or acknowledge anything. So the results uh, were pretty telling here. In the acknowledge group, they obviously did the best. Um, 49% of them made it all the way to 10 sheets and beyond where they were only getting like 10 or 5 cents uh, for doing this pretty lame task. And as you'd expect, the shredder group, they were the worst. Only 17% made it to the point where they were getting 5 or 10 cents a sheet. But it's actually pretty crazy that this obviously very, very boring, very, very menial job could be either made interesting if your effort was acknowledged, you got to put your name on the paper and you got a little smile and a wink, or extremely painful if they literally ripped your work to shreds in front of your eyes. So the experiment teaches us that sucking meaning out of work from your employees is very easy. If you're a sadistic manager who just enjoys making your stuff feel like crap, the quickest way to do it is just to destroy their work in front of their eyes, like the person we met earlier with their PowerPoint. You just look at them and you'll smile and you hit delete on every slide (laughs) and then you play. It's actually not very different to the other group where... uh, simply just not acknowledging or not giving any praise whatsoever and just letting them do the boring task, um, it really doesn't change the impact on motivation that much. Yeah, on, on average, the acknowledged group did nine sheets, the shredded group did six and the ignored did six and a half. So, it wasn't really between the two. It was just very close to being shredded is being ignored. And, you know, an interesting thought from a purely, again, from economics, a purely rational perspective, the person getting their work shredded, there's no proof no one was checking it. They didn't have their name on it. All evidence was destroyed. You could very easily cheat. No one was checking your work. You could just do 10 random circles as quick as you want, hand it in, shred, get your 50 cents, get your next one, do it as quick as possible, hand it in, shred, 45 cents, keep going. You just maximize by getting as much money as possible in as short a time as possible. But even when people did this, they said, no, this is meaningless. This is pointless. They still did a third less work than the people who were getting a nice little smile and a nice nod and a nice little good job so they could give themselves a pat on the back. It's pretty easy to see that all the sorts of ways companies can choke the meaning out of work. If you think about your own job, you probably don't have to think hard to find the processes and bureaucracies intended to make your work better, but actually just make it painful <laughs> and your whole day shit. Um, if you're a boss, if you've got a whole bunch of people working beneath you on small tasks, it could be an idea to just to bring them in, to, sh- to show them the bigger picture, maybe... 
um, get them in to meet the client and to see how happy they are with whatever they've produced. If you're on a construction site and they're you know working in the factory building something, maybe take them on site to see what their hard work on the ground has been to uh, produce a result that's going to be meaningful in the world. Yeah, a lot of time work in itself can be very rewarding. You know, you're doing the work. Maybe if you love building bionicles, obviously you enjoy doing it. So, you're doing it for the joy of doing it. Uh, if you're on a construction site, if you're building things, putting things together, there's obviously the inherent motivation of actually constructing stuff. But then when it comes to what happens next as a manager, it's very powerful. You know, you've, you've, and you've probably got two options. One is to try to improve motivation overall. So, that is really ramping up that sense of meaning. That is painting the bigger picture. That is introducing them to sort of the end result, not just their part of the task, but showing what actually happens, what are the real tangible benefits in the real world. Or at the very least you can do as a manager is don't suck the suck all the joy and meaning out of it. Don't just uh, don't just delete the PowerPoint. Don't just ignore them. At least give some kind of acknowledgement to to keep that intrinsic motivation going rather than sucking it all out of them. It happens all the way down the line. If you care about all your employees, I don't know, it might be the, the cleaner of the office or something. Next time you speak to them, at least say you're looking at what they did. You saw how they emptied the bins out and. Um, and how clean the floors were or whatever it might be. But whoever it is, it doesn't matter how manual the task is, it makes a very big difference to their day if it, at least you just acknowledge what they've done. Pride of creation and ownership runs deep in human beings. When we cook a meal from scratch or we make a painting or we put a piece of IKEA furniture together, we smile and say to ourselves, I'm, I'm very proud of what I've just made. For example, during uh, coronavirus, during lockdowns of 2020, I got deep into making weekly uh, weekly cookups, where that was a uh, Mexican spiced pulled pork tacos with a corn and feta salad, or wow. whether that was a uh, uh, a pumpkin ravioli with a burnt butter and sage sauce made Jesus. from scratch, made the pasta from scratch. <laughs> Look, admittedly, uh, it was probably a little bit too thick. It was probably a little bit undercooked. Uh, the um, the pasta was probably like a little a, a little bit floury. In all honesty, like probably if I got something out of a packet. Objectively, it's probably more perfect, mm. but definitely subjectively, I much preferred my own creation. Even though uh, it took probably twenty times as long, it took a full day to make. It probably cost twenty times as much buying the sh- all the stuff to go into it, rather than just getting you know something from a packet and putting it into boiling water. But it tasted phenomenal. Absolutely loved it. I had a similar thing when with U foods. I used to just buy packaged U foods and eat it for eight bucks and get some sort of enjoyment out of it. Recently made the switch to Marley Spoon where you got to cook it yourself and um, but it's all, they make it as easy as possible to cook it yourself and like last week I was telling Corey, I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten in my life <laughs> and in my mind I actually thought I was what I was eating was the best tasting thing and no chef has come close to it. <laughs> I, I thought that, I really believe that. Well, plenty of companies have, have made that uh that halfway in between. Obviously, there's one end of the spectrum where you're doing something completely from scratch. The other end is you're literally buying it off the shelf. Then there's that halfway in between. That's like the the packet of chocolate cake where you still got to add the eggs and the milk and mix it together and add the water and cook it. You're not just buying a, a cake off the shelf or like you know the HelloFresh, Marley Spoon, dinnerly options where they give you all the raw stuff, but you still cook it and put it together yourself. There's been, uh, or obviously, IKEA is the obvious one. You're not going down, chopping down trees, cutting the bits of timber to the right length. You've got all the stuff there, but you still have to do a fair bit of work to put it together yourself. So that element of adding a bit of ownership, a bit of creativity, a bit of work into doing it makes us enjoy that meal or that piece of furniture so much more. So psychologists have even termed this cognitive bias we're talking about here, the IKEA effect. 
and Ariella and his mates, they want to establish this concept, but they didn't want to just qualify it because it's uh, pretty self-evident in some places, like we were saying, but they also wanted to quantify it. And what they did is they put together an origami frog study. Yeah, they gave uh, the little bits of uh, nice thin colorful paper the right size. They gave instructions on how to fold the do the right steps in the right order to make a little frog. Where you, have you ever done those where you push on the button and it jumps up? I did it when I was primary school, I think. Yeah, so they had those and then your job was to build it, you know, or fold it, put it together and then uh, the, the researcher says, look, it's ours now but you can buy it if you want. And so, at the very end, they could submit a bid of how much they'd be willing to pay for it. So, Susan, she was first up. She had a few challenges. You know, she kind of folded it all right, uh, kind of missed one step, kind of ended up with a, a frog that was a little bit out of proportion, a little bit sort of wider and stouter than what it should have been. But at the end, she had a look at her frog and said, this is a pretty good looking frog. Uh, I'd be willing to buy this for 23 cents. So, where the second part of the experiment comes in, another person just walks past, uh, Julie, she comes in and looks at the frog and he's asked to bid on it too. So she's looking at Samantha's frog here and just sees this just crumble mess of just amateurish the first origami she's ever made and thought, <laughs> look, did a four-year-old make this? Who put this piece of crap together? And Julie, she said, all right, I'm going to give you five cents for this hunk of junk. It's the exact same frog. Exact same frog. The person who made it was willing to pay almost five times as much than the person who was much more objective, much more rational, who just saw the actual thing for what it was. So there was this massive inbuilt ikea effect here the almost 5x you're willing to pay just because it was yours just because you'd made it with your own two hands there was another part of the study where they actually got a pro origami person who made an objectively perfect origami frog and on this one julie was willing to bid 26 cents so it's obviously not just julie hates frogs uh, or not that Julie hates origami. She just hated that really shitty version that the first person made and she actually liked the pros version. But it's interesting that uh, the, the really shitty amateur was willing to bid 23 cents for their own one compared to 26 cents for the perfect origami masters one. So the whole point of all of this, we don't only just overvalue the things that we create. We see time and time again through hundreds or thousands of there's a whole bunch of different studies out there that we value the things way more if we had a part in creating it ourselves. But the biggest kicker is that a lot of the time we're just completely unaware of this tendency of ours. We just think that everyone else is fully in love with the, our <laughs> creations we've put together just as much as we are. And we mistakenly think that our creations are better than everyone else's, even though it's clear that it might be identical or yours might be a little bit worse than everyone else's. I might have come over and tasted Jonesy's perfect meal that he cooked and thought, oh, it's a little bit burnt here. I reckon you might have missed one or two of the steps. But Jonesy in his mind is just thinking, oh, this is the best meal ever. I bet Ashton loves that one. It was absolutely delicious. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, I, we'll have to test that one out. I'll, I'll send over some of my Marley Spoon creations and see what you reckon. Nice. Well, obviously, we've, got this, we've seen this IKEA effect in origami and building bionicles and in, in building furniture and creating food and cooking. Uh, but they probably don't mean a whole lot in the workplace unless you're a chef. But these concepts can be extrapolated to other areas, specifically when it comes to ideas. There is a massive IKEA effect of ideas, and that's often when my ideas are way better than your ideas. Yeah, there's eight people sitting at the table. Everyone's got a different idea about how to do things. Objectively, it might be your colleague's one who's better, and everyone votes for that. And 
but just the fact that you came up with your idea and put it on the table, you're going to overvalue what you think. So I think with this in mind, you could probably taper it a little bit and reduct 30 or 40% um, yeah. merit Ooh, to yeah. everything <laughs> everything you come up with because of this. Yeah, they call this this uh, almost the reverse of the IKEA effect is the not invented here bias. So the not invented here is when someone else comes up with an idea that wasn't invented by you, you probably undervalue that and then your own ideas you're significantly overvaluing. Ariely, he uh, he committed behavioral economic sin early in his career. He'd gone through this massive research uh, phase uh, and was presented to a bank and he found all these things about where people are irrational and then he said, hey, here's all these awesome ideas that I've come up with that you guys can do. Here's like the five ideas of what you guys can do to implement these in your bank, in your business and everybody's going to be better off. The bankers are going to be better off. The customers are going to be better off. Uh, and he showed all these awesome ideas. Well, the hotshot bankers, they were big dogs. Um, and they would have had the not invented here bias. Ariely gave them ideas rather than them coming up with them some things themselves. Ariely, in hindsight, he said instead what he should have done is presented all of his interesting findings and asked them what they thought mm. they could do based on the information that he presented then the bankers would come up with their own ideas and then they would have the IKEA effect thinking that the ideas are objectively so much better just because uh, they were part of the creation of it. Yeah, exactly. There was this massive not invented here. They didn't want some some bloody economist, some bloody consultant coming in telling them how to do their jobs. So they didn't actually do any of his suggestions even though Ariely himself had projected that they could you know, change the lives of millions and make the bank millions, tens of millions of dollars of extra profit. But just because it wasn't invented here, it wasn't their idea, they said, yeah, no, it's not, not that good of an idea, mate. Off you go. We uh, we notoriously say sometimes when we do a podcast, we get to the end of the book, we've done the podcast and we say, oh, I think we did the episode better oh, yeah. than the book. <laughs> <laughs> we probably do IKEA effect all the time. <laughs> and- mate, I reckon this is, from this book, this is by far the biggest one for me, man. I was a, I'm a massive IKEA and not invented oh, here. I significantly overrate my own ideas. We all yeah. are. <laughs> it's, it's actually crazy. If you think about, if you've done something and you've bought into the idea and it was your idea, you created this idea, it's such an awesome idea. And then someone else has got their idea and think, ah, oh, it's an okay idea, I guess, but well, I'm not really that keen on it. Yeah, well, if you think of the, if the listeners look at the ratings we give for each of the books that we do, because half the books you come <laughs> up with, you do the notes and yep. you're a lot more invested in the episode than Ooh, me because yeah. you brought it in. And same for me, some books I cherry pick out of the thin air, bring it in, do the notes. And and because uh, one of us put all the investment into it, you probably do a correlation between the ratings of the ones we brought in and compared to the ones you brought in and I think it's I think if you yeah if you look at those uh ratings of and you can, it's pretty obvious to see who picked that book that week yeah <laughs> <laughs> who put the effort in to put the episode together <laughs> oh so funny so like all things we discovered the not invented here bias it's both good and bad double edged sword having faith and confidence in your own ideas and creations is a really positive thing cuz you probably need that energy to pull your idea and take it forward but you might have too much confidence in your own ideas and your ears might be closed to what other people are bringing and uh, you're irrationally making everyone else's ideas seem bad in your own mind. So if we're students of human nature, what we need to do is work out how we can get more of the good and less of the bad when it comes to behavioral economics. So basically we've seen... The human brain works in very mysterious ways and when it comes to motivation and work, a lot of these things play a big role. We probably think that there's this, there's this big spectrum from the hyper-rational Mr. Spock to the completely fallible and irrational Homer Simpson. We probably think we're spocking it up but really, we're pretty much no better than Homer Simpson. 
as a bit of a metaphor when it comes to behavioral economics, when it comes to driving, we know our limitations. So what we do is we created seat belts and ABS brakes and lane departure warnings because there are going to be some days we're a bit tired, might be having a couple of beers at the pub and drive. <laughs> maybe, maybe don't do that. Don't recommend that. <laughs> but you need these things as safety nets for when you do the wrong thing. And when it comes to behavioral economics, we might need to recognize our cognitive limitations and create safety nets in this place to catch us when we're being irrational, particularly when we're making big, important decisions as individuals, as leaders, or as managers. There are upsides we've seen. Uh, We can use little things like pay and bonuses. We can use things like meaning. We can use things like ownership and the IKEA effect to improve people's work, to improve their motivations at work and make them do better work. But we just got to remember that some of these things that are irrational, they can make things better. We can tap into the upside, but they can also hold us back from high performance as well. So in summary, rather than striving for perfect rationality, we might be better off embracing our imperfections and seeing how these can sometimes benefit us. 